thank you for the wonderful uh, time of corporate worship. In many ways, I think in light of what we've heard thus far, we could read the text of Scripture and say amen and be done. Uh, The illustration of the text of Scripture that we will be preaching today is precisely what we heard uh, in the testimonies of those that were baptized, uh, uh, Rick and Alice and Tina. And, and you will come to see that, and I will make reference to that. Thank you as well. You know, when we gather as God's people, uh, we often uh, look at what we do uh, vertically, and it is that, but it's also horizontally. That is, that is the way in which, the manner in which, the degree to which we engage with in corporate worship of God, it, it serves others. Thank you for serving me and others today by joyfully singing praises to God. And, and I think of the young children over here who see you singing that same way. They're formed and shaped by, by watching what you're doing and how you're responding. And they will see a tear because, because they know someone's lost a spouse, someone's, someone's going through a difficulty, but we're still singing praises to God. That's forming the next generation for us. It's encouraging each other. Thank you for encouraging me in that way this morning. The text of Scripture comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 to 10. Before we read that, I do want to bring uh, greetings to you from Kevin Compline, who is our Evangelical Free Church of America president, uh, and from our national office. As one who serves in that role, we find great delight in in, in coming to churches, serving pastors and leaders in churches uh, on the front lines of ministry, uh, and we find great joy in doing that. Um, And uh, preaching, friends, is one of the primary God-ordained means of forming, shaping, and transforming the people of God. The miracle of preaching, hear that, the miracle of preaching is that God uses His inerrant and authoritative word to change lives. It is not only in preaching, but it is in preaching. So this morning we hear from God's word written by Paul to the church of the Thessalonians. As we come to the text of scripture to hear God speak in the present tense, as Jeff reminded us from Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12, the word of God is living and active. Please join me. As we read this, follow along if you have your Bibles, and then we will pray that the Holy Spirit, who inspired this word, will illuminate it in our hearts and minds. Let's read from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 to 10. It's the first chapter. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. 
For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and in Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Please join me <coughs> Excuse me, in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for the joy and the privilege we have of gathering as your people. That which we do often individually through the week, we corporately come together and give you praise and thanks and worship as a body, corporately speaking with a singular voice. And so now we sit under your word. We, we uh, are thankful that you speak, not just having spoken, you speak. Dear God, give us ears to hear to the end that we will become more conformed into the likeness of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. You know, the last couple of years have been somewhat unique, and yet this is life in a fallen world. What is indicative of life in this, this world is physical death. We live between Genesis 3 and Revelation 22. There's, there's perpetually a now and a not yet to the kingdom, meaning that for Christians, our lives consist of a gladness and a gravity, a glory and a groan, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. You know, for one who has looked across churches in the EFCA, the last two years have both created issues in and for the church, which we all know well, but it has also manifested and revealed issues in the lives of Christians and the church. In light of this, I thought it would be helpful to be reminded of God's transforming work in our lives and in the life of the church through God's word to the Thessalonian believers. And what we celebrated this morning in baptism. So what do we learn of the Thessalonians? Well, Thessalonica was a strategic city. It had one of the best natural harbors on the Aegean Sea. It was located at the juncture of the Ignatian Way, which was a major east-west Roman highway. And as a result of this specific location, it was one of the most important and populous uh, in, in Macedonia consisting of about 100,000 people and serving as the provincial capital. But it was also religiously pluralistic. And you're going to have to bear that in mind because Paul says that they turned to God from idols. It was very religiously pluralistic. There were many, many uh, Greco-Roman deities. Some of them you have heard of, Dionysius, Zeus, Aphrodite. And there were also Egyptian gods, Isis and Serapis, and others. And so you see, this has significance contextually for what Paul says. Well, when was the church in Thessalonica founded? Well, if you remember some of the, the mapping of Acts on Paul's then epistles later on, 
you realize or remember putting these pieces together that it was that was founded this church on Paul's second missionary journey. He, along with Silas and Timothy, had departed from Philippi, Philippians, traveled along the Ignatian Way that we just heard about and arrived a few days later in Thessalonica. Paul preached here for three Sabbaths in the synagogue with some Jews and God-fearing Gentiles being converted. And of course, when there are conversions, there is going to be suspicion and opposition, which started a riot against Paul. You may remember that they dragged Jason, Paul's house host, and some other Christians before the Polytarchs, claiming that they violated the peace. Well, from here, they went to Berea. Do you remember what, what manifests the Bereans? Chapter 17, 11. The Bereans were noble people, right? Because they searched the scriptures daily to see if what Paul said was true. That's the Bereans. That's where they went from there. Short time later, Silas and Timothy joined Paul in Athens. Now we're in Acts 17. Remember what happened in Athens. And from there, Paul travels to Corinth. But at Corinth, then Timothy comes back and brings a report from the believers in Thessalonica. Mostly it was good, but he also shared some concerns. That prompted Paul to write this letter. The most common theme in this book is the second coming of Jesus, as it is mentioned in every chapter of the letter. You know, John, John Stott writes this, uh, and he, he concludes the following, and it's an outline that I'm following in broad strokes. But here's what he writes. He shows, namely Paul, how the gospel creates the church and the church spreads the gospel and how the gospel shapes the church as the church seeks to live a life that is worthy of the gospel. And, and I, I love it's the gospel that transforms us. It's the gospel that we proclaim and it's the gospel manifested in how we live life together. Stott continues, as he begins this epistle, he focuses, Paul, on the church of God, which the gospel has brought into being, verses 1 to 4, and then addresses the gospel the church received and is spreading, concluding with a statement about the transforming power of the gospel in verses 5 to 7. So notice, first, the church of God, verses 1b to 4. What do we observe? Take a look at your Bibles again, and we will look at this text. It's always, it's always good to hear what God has said before expounding what God has said. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, and God the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Grace to you and peace. The church, though geographically localized, Thessalonica, exists and lives in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this epistle is sent to the church, a gathered body of believers. And when one becomes a believer, as we've heard this morning, one is not just born as a lone ranger, born individual. We are born into a family. Those who claim to love Jesus, honestly, friends, but despise or hate the church, do not understand the Lord Jesus and what he came to do. That is to redeem a people for himself. Note. This is sent to the church of the Thessalonians. That is, the believers in Thessalonica com comprise the church. 
But importantly, Paul identifies their location as in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Why would he not say in Thessalonica? Because for Paul, a theological address supersedes a geographical address. Or better yet, being in transforms being of. Which means, friends, we're all pilgrims. We are all sojourners. None of us have a permanent home. And this is what Paul reminds us here. We are of God the Father and the, and, and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not a geographical location that matters first and foremost. And I think this is important for us to remember today. Notice, secondly, the church manifests spiritual life through a work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus. Look at verse 3. Remembering, Paul writes, before our God and Father, your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. That should ring true to you in that there's a triad. Paul will often emphasize faith, hope, and love as marks of the Christian. And often what Paul will do, if you were to compare and contrast the various lists, and they're used a number of different uh, uh, places, he will vary the order so that the emphasized virtue occurs in the climactic final position. So here, what's the virtue that he's emphasizing? Hope. Do you remember what the issue that they were wrestling with? The return of Christ. Faith is directed to God. Love is directed to others. Hope is directed to the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith rests on the past. Love labors in the present. And hope steadfastly looks to the future. Every Christian is a believer, a lover, and a hope-filled longer. That's the mark of a Christian. And notice then, the church is loved by God and chosen. Verse 4. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Their Christian life, as is ours, is grounded in God's love. We love. Why? Why do we love? Because Christ, God, God, through Christ, first loved us. He loved us and gave himself for us. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2. It's the history of redemption, is it not? God choosing, not on our own worth, not on our own merit. We heard that clearly in the testimony of, of uh, uh, Rick and, and uh, Tina and Alex. Do you ever grow tired of remembering and relishing the fact that God loved and loves you? Remember the church in Ephesus. They were rebuked. Do you remember why? They had left their first love. You know, I, I, Leslie Newbigin writes, uh, and I don't agree with everything Leslie Newbigin writes, but in this particular instance, he writes this. He claims that the church of God is, and I quote, the only hermeneutic of the gospel. What is he saying? That we give testimony to the truth of what he has said in the scriptures. 
The primary reality, he writes, of which we have to take account in seeking for a Christian impact on public life is the Christian congregation. How is it possible that the gospel should be credible, that people should come to believe that the power which has the last word in human affairs is represented in a, by a man hanging on a cross? The only answer, the only hermeneutic of the gospel is a congregation of men and women who believe it and live by it. And then he, he highlights six characteristics of what ought to be true of the church, this community. And he writes this, it will be a community of praise in a world of doubt and skepticism. It will be a community of truth in a pluralistic society that overwhelms and produces relativism. It will be a selfless community that does not live for itself, but is deeply involved in the concerns of its neighborhood in a selfish world. It will be a community prepared to live out the gospel in public life in a world that privatizes all religious claims. It will be a community of a mutual responsibility in a world of individualism. It will be a community of hope in a world of pessimism and despair about the future. This, dear friends, is what the gospel of Jesus Christ creates, not just individually, but as the people of God. Notice then, secondly, the power of the gospel. Uh, the gospel of God. The gospel of God, verses 5 to 10. Now what we see here is that the gospel becomes the culminating truth of this text. Now here at the midpoint of this, this first chapter, it looks backward as critical to understand what the church of God is. And it is critical in looking forward to see the effects or the fruit of the gospel in both messengers and recipients. Notice firstly, verse 5, if you look at your Bibles once again. Because, Paul writes, our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. So notice firstly, the way the gospel came, heralds, evangelists, and messengers. Notice he begins, because. Paul begins by, by pointing out two things. He provides their, 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 their content and character in authenticity and authority. He provides two grounds, this because. Authenticity, they were authentic, and authority. They had an authority, not their own. So there's an authenticity and authority of those preaching the gospel, the content of the gospel, and the character, the character formed and transformed by the gospel. It's not just lips, friends. It's also life. It's both and. It's not either or. It's both and. And notice he goes on to say, in word. That is, the gospel is good news. It's a word. It needs to be proclaimed. It has content. The content is Jesus Christ. It comes in power. And you know the power, as we, as we heard about once again? It's the power to make dead people alive. It, it refers to the power of the gospel to create new life. That's why I said what we observed earlier, it's an illustration of what Paul is writing about here. 
but also in the Holy Spirit. This is a ministry of the Holy Spirit to make these changes. This is not just about making certain decisions and making a good person better. This is about making a spiritually dead person alive. And notice it's with full conviction. Convinced this is true. It's true. The faith, once for all entrusted to the saints. And it's believed personally by one by an individual that transforms our character. It's content, it's character, it's lips, it's life. And Paul reminds us, it's for your sake. For your sake. The gospel enables us to give ourselves for the sake of others, as Jesus did. Remember Jesus, Mark chapter 10, verse 45, he did not come to serve, uh, sorry, he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. No, we don't have to give our lives. We couldn't as a ransom for many. We couldn't. Jesus did. And so we follow him, not in the ransom part, but we sure do in the serving part. Notice, secondly, the way that the gospel was received, verses 6 to 8. Verses 6 to 8, if you have your text again, let's look at verses 6 to 8. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. The exemplary nature of the Thessalonians' response to the gospel contrasts words with power. Notice verse 6. Verse 6. You received the word in much affliction. There was not martyrdom at this point in, in history, but they w- there was persecution. There was social harassment. There, there was a cost. Just as there is today, friends, Identifying as a Christian or with a church used to carry cultural capital. There was not much of a cost. Today, it carries a cultural cost and potentially condemnation. But how, how do we respond? How did the Thessalonians respond? Take that as a model for how we ought to respond. Notice verse 6. So with much affliction, with the joy of the Holy Spirit. In other words, the same Spirit who gave power to those who preached the gospel gave joy to those who received it. He empowers the Holy Spirit speakers and hearers. And we remember that joy is a fruit of the Spirit. We remember as well, just as we heard, there is joy in heaven among the angels over sinners who repent. As we mentioned earlier, one of the realities of living in this this fallen world is that we are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. And this is not a grit-your-teeth thing or a Pollyanna-ish sort of existence. It is a deep trust in God that manifests the gospel, the fruit of the Spirit, being lived out in life. 
John Piper writes, Occasionally weep deeply over the life that you hoped would be. Grieve the losses. Feel the pain. Then wash your face. Trust God. And embrace the life that he's given you. So he continues. Grieving is real. Loss, losses are real. Pain is real. Really felt. Really expressed. And hope is real. That changes it profoundly. How many of us haven't experienced those disappointments of the weeping? And if you haven't, you will. It's life in a fallen world. But God enables us. God enables us. It's a supernatural work to respond in ways that reveal a trust and a hope that is not just temporary. Notice as well then that the ground of the gospel that, 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 that is an imitator. You know, I have to pause. Where are we? Sorry. One, two more minutes. Let's go back. Oops. I think I'm going forward. Sorry. Oh, twice. Okay, there we are. Is that one more? Sorry about that. Okay, that's okay. Uh, but then also that we imitate. We imitate. Uh, notice what he says once again in verse 6a. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. There's a model. There's modeling. And, and notice the extent to which their, their, uh, uh, their lives have reached Macedonia and Achaia. Provinces to the north and to the south, uh, modern-day Greece. And the gospel sounded forth. It echoed evangelistic activity. The news of their newfound faith of the Thessalonians. And imitation, friends, is part of the Christian life. I talked about that earlier. The way we engage in our corporate worship, that we can be encouraged by one another. It's part of the Christian life. You know, my, little, my, my young grandson, uh, Kelvin, uh, he, he repeats everything that, that, that one says. Uh, you know what this is. It's like a parrot, right? You say something, he says something. You say something, he says something. And that's the imitation. It's part of the learning process. The Christian life is, is, is similar in that respect. It's taught. The Christian life is taught and caught. If it is, if it is taught but not caught, that is if what we teach is not lived in order to be caught, that's a problem. You know, I, we may often <laughs> criticize and condemn uh, the next or the younger generation, uh, but, but it's easier to con criticize and condemn the other generation than one's own. That evidences a proclivity of our own selfishness. But the other thing I say to myself is, well, what was modeled to them? What, what did I, as a, as a dad, what did I model to them? I need to look in the mirror. You know, and we contrast the denial that Paul in Titus chapter 1, verse 16, of those Christians or so-called Christians in Crete who claim to know God, but by their actions deny him. And finally, finally then, the gospel of God, the power of God, trans, the, the power of the gospel transforms, verses 9 and 10. For they themselves, verse, uh, if you look at the text again, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. 
You know, this is, I think, the fullest and clearest account of the power of the gospel evidenced in regeneration or conversion that I, that I know in the scriptures. The gospel transforms and turns the heart and affections to God. There are three aspects to this turning, this conversion. It, begi- it, sorry, it begins with a turning from and a turning to. And this turning language is a technical term. It's a term for conversion. It's a, it's a term that, that, that carries with it this idea of repentance. A 180 degree turn of the direction I'm going, it's a turn to that degree. Going north, I'm going south. And notice, notice verse 9 that they, 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 they turn to God from idols. Idols are dead, friends. God is living. Idols are false. God is true. Idols are human fabrications. God is the creator of all. What does idolatry mean today? Let me give you a definition. This is not my own. Um, it's, it's one that I've, I've uh, I, I use as a resource. I find it helpful. Uh, Tim Keller entitled Counterfeit Gods. Here's how he defines it. What is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything that you seek, that anything you seek to give you what only God can give. An idol is whatever you look at in, 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 and say in your heart of hearts, if I, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. A counterfeit God is anything so central and essential, essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. And elsewhere he writes, sin isn't only doing bad things, it is more fundamentally making good things into ultimate things. Sin is building your life and meaning on anything, even a very good thing, more than on God. Whatever we build our life on will drive us and enslave us. Friends, I only refer back to those our dear brother, brothers and sisters who said that very thing as they shared God's transforming work in their lives. Sin is primarily idolatry. Notice, secondly, to serve the living and true God. So it's, 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 turning, it's turning to God from idols to serve the living and true God. The living and true God is a common description of God in the Old Testament. And here the expression is used to contrast him with the dead and false gods that the Christians formerly worshipped. And this turning to God from idols to serve the living and true God impacts both our individual lives, and we heard that, but it also affects our corporate life together as the body of Christ. It's part of what we are here. It affects this part of our gathering as well. I like what Ray Ortland, who uh, describes a, the, the, the gospel creates a certain community, a certain culture in the community. And he describes it in this way. The doctrine of regeneration creates a culture of humility. The doctrine of justification creates a culture of inclusion. The doctrine of reconciliation creates a culture of peace. The doctrine of sanctification creates a culture of life. 
The doctrine of glorification creates a culture of hope. The doctrine of God creates a culture of honesty. No fake news here. No truthiness here. Just truth. Because God is truth. And then finally notice. To wait for the Son from heaven, verse 10. To wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is one of the fundamental elements, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is of first importance. You know, we often will focus on the death of Christ, but not his resurrection, except on Easter Sunday morning. But his resurrection vindicates his death. We affirm it without reservation. And then notice the promise, who delivers us from the wrath of uh, the wrath to come. Delivers is present tense, friends, which means it's so certain that it might as well be happening today. That's what he means, which is why then they have hope. That's why. One writes, is Christianity declining where you are? Is it rather growing in power and influence? Is persecution coming for you? Or is cultural success around the corner? None of it matters. Our calling is precisely the same. In what we call times of ease and what we call times of struggle. And the good news is always news and always good. Don't bother being an optimist or a pessimist. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. So, dear friends, thanks be to God that by the power of the gospel, testimonies we've heard this morning, and all of us, slightly different ways, but as Pastor Allen said, we end up at the same place. We have turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Please join me in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for these wonderful truths. Thank you for reminding us of these truths today, that this word is living and active. Yes, it was inspired years ago, it's inscripturated, yes, but it's also living and active today. Thank you as well, not just of being reminded of this living and active word, this truth. Thank you that it was illustrated in personal lives this morning in the waters of baptism. Might that encourage us to worship you everything this day. In Christ's name.